There we go. Man, it's good just to be together, isn't it? It's, it feels like so long since we've been able to do this sort of thing. And just somebody was saying it's the first time you've had the band back together. Is that right? Such a big yeah, such a big band. Okay, yeah. It's just, it just feels so good to be able to worship, to worship together. I'm totally loving it. And coming into this weekend, we just had the sense of you coming into a new season as a church and God wanting to do a new thing, God doing a new thing, and God wanting to resource you, to give you everything that you need to kind of move into that new chapter with him. And Ros was describing that sense of God pouring his spirit out in a fresh way for mission. But also, you know, I think God wants to give you fresh faith that that is going to be really fruitful and people are going to become Christians and lives are going to be changed in the next season and people are going to come into this church who are far from God. They're going to connect to him. They're going to meet with him and their lives are going to be changed. And, you know, Ros was reading from Acts chapter two, where, where the spirits poured out. The rest of the book of Acts basically just describes the outworking of that, like the, the impact that that has and how, you know, God pouring his spirit out made a difference and brought change to the world, first in one city and then in the surrounding region and the surrounding nations as that story went on. And, you know, the truth is that wasn't one long success story. There were lots of setbacks, lots of disappointments as Jesus' friends tried to take the message of God's love out into the world. And I can't do um, maps like Ros can, but I did do one, kind of coincidentally, actually. Um, because when you get to Acts chapter 16, you get to one of those moments because two of the, the leaders in the, the first church, Paul and Silas, they feel called by God to take uh, the message of Jesus and take the love of God out into Turkey. And so that sort of yellow line, I need one of those lecture, you know, the lecture dudes with a cane. And they're like, you can see clearly if you consider exhibit A. But that sort of yellow line, they set out from their homeland, from Israel into Western Turkey because they felt called by God to do that. But you know, super bold, but basically everywhere they went, there was no response, there was no opportunity, there was no success, there was no interest. And so they spent months walking hundreds of miles across Turkey, uh, you know, and the whole thing just seemed to be a total waste of time and effort until they hit the end of the road, literally, because they reach Troas. I don't know if you can see that, it's super tiny, but that kind of far western corner of Turkey um, they, they reach like the coast and you know nowhere's open to them until they get to Troas and they felt like well this has just been a waste of months of our lives they go to bed that night and Paul has a dream a bit like Ros's dream actually because that night he has a dream of a man standing on the other side of the ocean in Greece saying come over to Macedonia and help us come over to Macedonia and help us which always reminds me of that scene in the first Star Wars movie where um, Princess Leia sends that message, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope. <laughs> it's sort of, yeah, anyway, you don't need to know that. Um, and the next day they sail to Greece, you know, and they begin to see, oh, maybe there's some purpose in this. Because for the very first time, the message about Jesus leaves the Middle East and it goes to Europe. And so for the first time, the message about Jesus goes into a culture that can't easily connect to the story of Jesus and can't really understand it. In other words, it goes into a culture like ours. It goes into a culture just like ours. And so there's a kind of a suspense in the act story at that moment because this question is left hanging. Is the message about Jesus really going to be able to win people in a culture like that? You know, are there going to be limits on who this Jesus stuff can reach and the kind of lives that this Jesus stuff can change? I mean, is Jesus really going to be able to reach friends like mine in the 21st century? And it's almost as though Luke, who wrote this story down, has written the chapter we're about to read in order to answer that question. Because in chapter 16 of Acts, he shows how the message about Jesus comes into the lives of three totally different people and totally changes each one of them. Have a look at this. Paul and Silas end up in the city of Philippi, and Luke writes this. I haven't got this in my notes. I have to read it from the screen. Oh, my, my eyesight's nowhere near good enough to read it from the back. <laughs> Luke says this, he says, he's with them. He says, on the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, this is in Philippi, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began speaking to the women who'd gathered there. 
One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a God-fearer, who was a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Another time when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners through fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. I don't know how they put up with it for many days, like being followed around by a shouting woman. But after many days, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that very moment, the spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope for making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and they're throwing our city into uproar by teaching customs that it's illegal for us Romans to practice. A crowd joined in the attack on Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. On receiving his orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. All at once the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them outside and asked, sirs, please tell me, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. Man, what a story that is. And Luke's chosen these three stories about these three people deliberately to show how, you know, this, the stuff that Ros was talking about, how that works out into the lives of real people, how Jesus can reach people from such varied backgrounds. And Luke's done it to give us fresh faith that Jesus can reach varied people, you know, that all... The whole variety of people that we interact with, Jesus can reach them. He can reach friends and family like mine and like yours. And so we're going to look at this, look at these three. I'm going to pause after each one and we're going to reflect, you know, where do you see the likeness of your friends and family in the lives of these three people in Luke's story? And maybe where do you see reflections of yourself as well, your own story? And Luke's showing us three things. He's showing us that Jesus is beautiful enough for religious people. He's powerful enough for enslaved people, and he's compelling enough for disinterested people. So let's have a look at these three. Firstly, beautiful enough for religious people, because let's just stop and profile Lydia for a minute. And you might want to get this story up on your phone or something, because I'm going to ask you guys some questions. It's Acts chapter 16, and it's not all going to come back up on the screen. But Lydia, what do we know about Lydia from the story? Tell me some things. What was that, Adam? She's a dealer in purple cloth, exactly. So she's a businesswoman. And one of the things that we know from uh, first century history is purple dye was very hard to come by. So purple, you know, if you had clothes dyed purple, they were very expensive. She is trading fashion and fabrics that are worth thousands. She's an entrepreneur and she's a good one. What else do we know about her? What does it say exactly? Can you, can you have a look? 
It's a very interesting word that Luke uses. What does it say? Somebody got the passage? Amazing. That's how she responds to God, isn't it? God opens her heart. And we're going to get to that in a sec. We get told something else before that. What does it say? Anybody looking at this? She was a worshipper of God. Okay. And the phrase it actually uses in, uh, in the New Testament uh, Greek is she was a God-fearer. It's a special sort of technical term for somebody who's not Jewish but is reaching out to the God of Israel. So she's a religious person. She's a sympathizer. She's interested. Um, she's trying to connect to the God of the Bible. And there's no synagogue in Philippi because there weren't enough Jews there. Remember, we're, we're in Europe now. But there was a place by the river where the Jews who did live there gathered together. They studied scripture with anyone else who was seeking their God. They prayed together. And when Paul and his friends go and find this place where the Jews are gathering, Lydia's there. She's not Jewish, but she's reaching out to the God of the Bible. She's seeking him. She's a God-fearer. She's praying. She's reading. She's listening. Good. Anything else? What else do we get told? One other thing, small thing, but... Wow, yeah, she's from Thyatira. I don't even know where that is, so I can't tell you any significance. <laughs> Anything else we get told? What else comes into the story? What happens after she responds to God? She has a house, right? And, and you know, you didn't have spare rooms. It's not like, you know, you had, a, you had a room in your house just all set up for visitors. And I'm staying with Graham and Nikki tonight. Hopefully, I'll get a room of some description. You didn't have that. People weren't wealthy enough to have houses with spare rooms. She's got a house with multiple spare rooms. Remember, it's, it's Paul, it's Silas, it's Luke, and the rest of us, Luke says. They all pile over to Lydia's. She's got a massive house of some description. They all go and stay at her house. So we know she is, she's super wealthy, which fits with you know, her being a very successful businesswoman. Okay, and then let's come back to this thing of how does she respond to God then? What, what happens? How does her life get changed? How does God break in on her life? What happens? I'm sorry, I don't know your name, but would you mind reading that a little bit again for us? Francis, Francis please, if that's okay. The Lord opened her heart. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. To give heed, to respond to her heart. So she has... She has a heart response. God's doing something. The Lord opened her heart and she responds to Paul's message. And again, that word respond, it's a word that means to be attracted to. God opens her heart so that she's attracted to what Paul was saying. She saw something beautiful, something compelling in what he's saying. We don't know exactly what that was, but it's something that was so beautiful. It moved her at a heart level. It was captivating. And she responded. She was, she was drawn to what Paul was saying. And, you know, we don't get told what that was. But, you know, if we were going to guess, we can imagine, you know, Paul comes down to the river. Here's these Jewish people. It says they were all women. They're studying the Bible. They're praying. Almost certainly Paul would have said, hey, tell me, like, what, what are you guys learning about the God of the Bible? And, you know, maybe the women would have said something along the lines of this. Well, we know that, that God appeared to Abraham and promised to bless all the nations of the earth through his family. And we know he came to Moses and he gave Moses the great law of God that shows us what God's like but seems impossible to keep. Or maybe they said this, you know, we know God also gave Moses a system of sacrifices so that some kind of payment can be made for our failure to live up to God's law. These are some of the things that we're learning. And Paul must have said, hey, let me tell you the key to the whole thing. Let me give you the key that makes sense of all this. Jesus. Jesus. Jesus fulfilled God's promise to Abraham because Jesus is the one who's been sent to bring that blessing to all the nations on earth. And Jesus fulfilled the law that God gave to Moses. He's the only person who ever lived a totally pure life of love for God and for other people. 
And Jesus is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. He's the Lamb of God who took the curse that we deserved so that we could receive the blessing that his life deserved. Everything you guys are reading about in the scripture points to Jesus. Every prophet, every priest, every hero, every lamb, every sacrifice, every powerful king, every suffering servant, all of them are pointing to Jesus. And man, when Lydia heard that, it was beautiful to her. She was religious. In other words, she was trying to live a good life in the hope that she would be accepted by God. But when she hears about the love that God has already poured out for her in Jesus, the beauty of that is enough to bring massive change into her life right there and then on the spot. Do you know, Jesus doesn't make people religious. Religious people need Jesus. They need to see the beauty. Lydia saw it. And... As you read on in the rest of the New Testament, Paul explains how that change happens for religious people. And especially when you read a book like Galatians, for example, he kind of breaks down you know, how that change comes about. And the most helpful way I've ever seen of explaining that is this, and hopefully you guys will find it helpful. But Paul says, real Christians and religious people all kind of start with God. They start up here. And they both have the sense of, um, you know, a desire for God's goodness. They're pursuing the goodness of God. That's what they want, the blessing of God in their lives. And they also both have a sense that it's important to obey God. Living a life of obedience for God is really important. Oh, can't spell obedience. It's a bit unfortunate. Paul says, look, all three of these things are in the mix for real Christians and for religious people and they, all start, they, they both start here with that sense of, um, you know, the importance of God and, and wanting to connect to God. Paul says, but the most important question is this. You start here, where do you go next? You know, do you go this way around the triangle and try and connect to the goodness of God by living a life of obedience for God? Is that the way around you go? Or he says, do you go this way around? And just receive the goodness of God as a gift because of what Jesus has done for you. And out of the overflow of that, live for him. And, you know, it's taken me such a long time to understand this. Because these two things sound really similar, don't they? It's like all the same pieces of the jigsaw are in the mix. But Paul says these are not just two different ways of kind of expressing the same thing. These are not you know, two different forms of Christianity. He says the difference between these two, they're utterly different. He says that these two ways of living, they have utterly different impacts on people's lives, on people's characters. He says, if you live like this, if you try to connect to the the goodness of God by living a life of obedience for God in the hope that somehow it's going to be good enough, he says that always leads in the end to misery, to slavery, And death, can you believe that? It's going to lead to death in your life. It's going to lead to misery and slavery. And he says, look at the contrast. He says, if you go the other way around, if you receive the goodness of God into your life as a gift and live out of the overflow of that, he says, always, in the end, it will lead to joy and freedom and life. Man, look how different these two are. It shocks me when you read Galatians. That's how it works out in people's lives. When you see the beauty of what Jesus has done, the life he lived and his willingness to lay it down for you, when you see what he gave up for you, when you see the measure of his love for you, that there isn't anything he wouldn't do for you now to hold on to you and to get the goodness of God into your life as a gift, when you see that, when you see how beautiful that is, to the degree that you do see the beauty of that, to that same degree, you yourself will be set free to live a life that's beautiful for God. That's always the way to lasting change, Paul says, seeing the beauty of what Jesus has done. Why? Because it's the only thing that can change your heart. It changes your heart. It changes the motivational center of your whole life. And for all of us, 
The default setting of our hearts, unfortunately, is to go this way round the triangle. We all default back into trying to do well enough for God and trying to live a life that's somehow good enough for God. We all do that. You do that. You go back to that. And so we need to be reminded every day just of the sheer beauty of the love God has for us and out of the overflow of that, live a life that's beautiful for him. Man, religious people need Jesus. Lydia saw it. When she heard Paul's explanation, it touched her heart as well as her mind. She saw the beauty. Okay, so my first discussion question for you is this. We're going to get into little twos and threes just with the people around you. Uh, Here we go. Who do you know with some similarities to Lydia? Remember what we said, she's successful, maybe somebody who's successful or, and or somebody who's sympathetic to Christianity and or someone who's trying to live a life that's somehow good enough for God but isn't a Christian yet. They don't know that kind of gift that God is seeking to give them. Who do you know like that? Just get into twos and threes, just talk about, it may just be one of those things, it may be two, it may be three. Just have a little chat. Who is in your kind of orbit of your life who's got some of those similarities to Lydia? And then in a couple of minutes, we'll just go on to where do you recognize yourself in Lydia's story and in all of that? So go on, find somebody near you and have a little chat about that. Okay, why don't you go on to the second question if you haven't done that already. Where do you see yourself in Lydia's story or echoes of your story in Lydia's story? Have a little chat about that for two minutes as well and then we'll, we'll go again.
Good stuff. Should we have a look at the next one? Maybe just hold all that in your heart. We're going to get to prayer at the end. But um, secondly, we said compelling enough for religious people. Secondly, powerful enough for enslaved people. Because Luke says what happens to Lydia isn't the only way that people come to faith. That kind of heart change thing. In fact, Luke's next case study. I mean, look at the contrast between Lydia and the second person in his story, this slave girl. She's almost exactly the opposite of Lydia in every respect. Because what do we get told about her? Have a little look. What do we get told? I mean, you can state the obvious, don't She's a slave, thank you. Okay. So, you know, Lydia's this very wealthy, very successful person. Man, this girl is beyond poor. She's a slave. She's being completely exploited. She's powerless to do anything about it. She is the poorest of the poor in pretty much every respect. What else do we get told about her? I'm sorry, could you say that again? Yeah, exactly. She's being exploited. You know, as part of her slavery, she's exploited. Excellent. She's possessed with a, a demon. Yeah, so she's suffering. She's suffering some form of spiritual oppression. And again, you know, we don't know exactly what that was. But man, like, Lydia's a spiritual seeker. She's kind of pursuing God. But this girl is at the other end of the spectrum spiritually you know, she's suffering some kind of oppression. She's someone whose life is being lived out in incredible pain and turmoil. She's right at the other end of the spectrum. And so on the inside, she's got this demonic stuff holding her captive. On the outside, she's being exploited. She's being oppressed as a slave by these people who are making money out of her. She's got enslaving forces inside and outside, internally and externally. You know, she's totally trapped in every possible way. And it's not hard to think of 21st century equivalents of this, is it? Someone who's struggling, who's trapped by addiction and being exploited as a result. This is someone who's an extreme example of that kind of situation. And yeah, it's, you know, it's awful. And so how does Jesus impact her life then? How does change come for this person? What happens? <laughs> yeah, she winds somebody up. He's like, I'm going to do you good. Um, what happens? Lydia's reached through this kind of reasoned debate that appeals to her heart. What happens here? What happens to this girl? How does change begin for her? He did. And what does he do about it? He says, stop it. He says, stop it. He says, again, I haven't got this. What does it say exactly? He, uh, he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. In the name of Jesus, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. How does her life change? She has a power encounter. You know, she, her, her life is stopped by a massive power encounter with this God. It, it's amazing what happens to her. She has a power encounter. Not a reasoned debate, not an appeal to the heart, not captivated by the beauty. Power. The power of God comes into her life. But it's not just that. That's not the only way that Jesus sets her free because she's also got these human slave masters as well. And so as well as needing that kind of internal supernatural deliverance, she also needs justice. She needs justice. She needs her circumstances to change. And that starts to happen as well because she can't tell people's fortunes anymore. And so her owners are furious. Like their hope of making money out of her is gone. And that's why Paul and Silas get beaten up. That's why they stir up the trouble. It's not because they're preaching about Jesus. It's because these guys can't make their money anymore. They're upsetting the system. They're challenging the human powers as well as the spiritual powers. And so many people in our world need that as well, don't they? They need social justice. They need circumstantial change. That starts to happen for her as well. 
I was really impacted reading about um, World Vision, which some of you might have heard of, but they're a massive global Christian charity. One of the, the directors is an American guy called uh, Robert Linthicum. And I was reading his story of how he started that charity, what it all goes back to. He says the roots of that charity go back to God showing him that what people need is Christians bringing change to society, not just change to people's hearts. And this is his story. It's just a super short story. But he says, one summer when I was a student, I went to work for a large city center church with poor teenagers on a council estate when 14-year-old Eva started coming along. She was very beautiful, but her family was wrecked all the way through by crime and drugs, and she felt as though she had no future. The school she went to was terrible. She could barely read. But through the youth club in the church, she'd come to faith in Jesus, and hope had started to come back into her life. Just before I left, at the end of that summer, she told me, Rob, I'm in big trouble. A gang from our estate is persuading girls to go and be prostitutes for wealthy men out of town. They make the money, and the girls are like their slaves. They're trying to get me. I remember telling her something like, well, the Bible says if you resist the devil, he will flee from you. Stick with the youth group. Keep going. Don't give up. I was so naive. I thought that if she was a Christian, she wouldn't give in to them. A few months later, when I went back to the church, I heard she dropped out. I tracked her down, but when I found her, she would hardly look at me. Look, I gave in. I'm working for them, okay? How could you give in like that? I said, completely unsympathetically. She said, well, first they beat my father, then my brother, who ended up in hospital. Then they threatened my mother, so I joined. Why didn't you just go to the police, I said. Rob, she said, who do you think they are? In that moment, my whole understanding of the ministry of Jesus changed. I realized the only way to minister to people like Eva is not just to reach them as individuals. It's also to go after and change the injustices in society. And that's what you see Paul and Silas doing. They're starting to fight the social powers now as well as the spiritual ones. They go after both those things. And that's one of the effects that Jesus has on people who follow him. You realize that, you know, as his ambassador, in the way that Ros was talking about, going out with the Spirit into the world, you're called to bring about change. You know, it changes the way you see your money and your career and your time and your need for personal space. Because you're called to make a difference in the world. And I know, man, this is something that really matters to you guys as a church that's right in the heart of who you are as a church, not just bringing change to people's hearts, but to the circumstances of their lives as well. And that's what you see Paul and Silas doing here. Okay, second little question for discussion. Who do you know who seems enslaved to something and might need a power encounter to get them free? Which people in West Leeds do you think are most in need of social justice which bits of the slave girl's story can you relate to in your own life? Have a little talk about that.
Good stuff. We're going to pray in a couple of minutes, but let's just have a little look at um, the jailer then. Thirdly, lastly. So um, we've said Jesus is beautiful enough for religious people. He's powerful enough for enslaved people. Thirdly, lastly, the jailer, compelling enough for disinterested people. And there's a bit of guesswork with like profiling the jailer, but what, what do we know about him? Just let's throw some stuff out there. Let's try and imagine some things about his life. What do we know, if anything? It was his job, okay? So... What we know about that is that almost all kind of uh, civil servants, which is what he was effectively, they were ex-Roman soldiers. So almost certainly this is a guy who's um, been in the army and kind of, you know, done all of that. He's battle-hardened, he's battle-weary, he's a tough guy, he's come through all of that, he's moving into the second half of his life, and this is his job, okay? And, you know, in terms of, like, success... He's not this great success story like Lydia making loads of money, but also he's not this totally, this person who's got a totally broken life like the slave girl. He's just somewhere in the middle. Like this is a guy who's just sort of living a normal life. You summed it up beautifully. This is just his job. It's just what he does. Okay? Good. Anything else we can guess about this guy, Andrew? Exactly. So he's, he's under pressure. It's a very pressurized, high stakes position. Exactly. And what about spiritually? Do we get told anything? What, what can you pick up from, you know, the story? Is, he, is this someone who's really seeking after God? Is he sympathetic? Is he, you know, is he hostile? Is he broken? Where's he at on the spiritual spectrum? What, what can we pick up, if anything? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it starts to make an impact on him, doesn't it? But initially, he doesn't seem as though he's searching for God. And, you know, man, they, they've like been severely flogged, the story says. And he's told to watch them carefully. He puts them in the inner cell. He puts them in the stocks, which was a form of mild torture. So this doesn't seem like a guy who's, you know, really generously uh, predisposed to, to these Christian leaders. He's like pretty unsympathetic. He's just, he's just battle-hardened. He's, he's wearied by being in the Roman army. And in all probability, he's not someone who's searching for God like Lydia. But he doesn't seem to be in spiritual turmoil like the slave girl. This is just someone who's probably just spiritually disinterested. You know, what relevance could, could this Jesus stuff have to his and him and his life? He wants stuff that, that's going to work. He wants stuff that's, that's practical, that's going to make a difference. And, you know, so if Lydia is like a modern businesswoman and the slave girl is like someone whose life is broken by addiction and oppression, the, the jailer's like someone who's just your average guy working a normal job, getting on with his life. And when it comes to Jesus, almost certainly he's just not interested. Yeah. Yeah. But he sees something in their response to their suffering and to the earthquake that has an impact on him. He's impacted by the evidence of changed life, a different way of living. So, um, you know, and it's really interesting. Paul and Silas, they, they don't seem to try to reach out to him initially, do they? You know, with Lydia, they reach out to her with the message about Jesus. With the slave girl, they reach out with the power of Jesus. With this guy to start off with, they don't seem to reach out at all. To find out about Jesus, he has to come to them. So why? Do you know, it's because you don't tell the news about Jesus to someone who couldn't care less, do you? 
You don't talk at people. You're wasting your time. You have to get their attention first. You have to show them that Jesus is good news through the evidence of a changed life. I just saw yesterday a quote from somebody who said, um, truth worth hearing, true answers worth listening to come from a life worth questioning. I was like, oh, that's what this guy is doing. That's what Paul and Silas are doing. The answers that are worth listening to come from their lives that are worth questioning. Do you know, a life of sacrificial love provokes questions. Why would you live sacrificially? Why would anybody? It gets people's attention. It shows them that Jesus is good news. And when Paul and Silas arrive at the prison, we've already said, he, he kind of tortures them. He's got no interest in them. He's hardened to their suffering. But as the night goes on, they're, they're singing in the prison. They've got a joy that even their suffering can't take away. Everyone can see that. And also how they respond to him personally, because he's disinterested in their suffering. But when he's, his life's on the line, they hold everybody together. Don't harm yourself. We, we've kept everybody together. We're looking after you. We're looking out for you. We know your life's on the line if people escape. Don't harm yourself. We're helping you. It's a different way of living. In the middle of their own suffering, they care about him. They repay evil with good. And he's never seen anything like that before. He doesn't understand it, but he can see that it works. Whatever's at the center of their life, it works. This is a different way of living that gives them incredible strength in the face of suffering and abuse. And because of his background, probably he's a very pragmatic person. This appeals to him. This works. And that kind of intelligent debate, heart, beauty appeal wouldn't have worked. And he wasn't open to a power encounter with God. But when he sees how they're living, it's compelling. He had no interest in Jesus, but now he falls to his knees and says, hey, I need what you've got. Please help me. And there and then he gets baptized. And I love this. He gets the same joy that he's seen in them. In that moment, he was filled with joy in that moment. Why? Because he'd come to know God, he and his whole family. He gets the same joy that he's seen in them and in the way they're living differently. Okay, and so lastly, just before we spend some time praying, which of your family or friends or colleagues do you find it hardest to imagine coming to Christ because they just have no interest? You know, maybe someone you've walked with for a long time, they've known you've been a Christian for a long time, they're just not interested. Who is that? You just think that that person's just never going to become a Christian. They have no interest. Who's that in your life? Why don't you just chat about that and then we're going to come back together. We're going to spend some time praying for these people.
Good stuff. Maybe we should just try and turn our conversations into prayer and just pray for some of these people that you've been chatting about as we've gone on this last half an hour. You know, what Luke's trying to do is awaken fresh faith that Jesus can reach people from every background, every nationality, every personality type, every set of circumstances, and he can do it in ways that are beyond our understanding or imagining. He can tailor it to exactly the the needs of their heart. You know, he wants us to have fresh faith. So let's pray with fresh faith for some of the people that we've been chatting about. Let's do that for a few minutes. That'd be great.